The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to talk about church today. Uh, I mentioned in our forum class that the theme of the Shepherds Conference this year was I Will Build My Church. And it was very appropriate for the study that we've had for these past several weeks on uh, the churches of Asia, churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there to Revelation chapter 3. And these past few weeks, I have made a mini-series out of, uh, within our series of The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches, uh, dealing with the exposition of Jesus' letter to the Laodicean church. This is the last of the seven churches of Asia. It's the last church that received a letter. And it's appropriate uh, to spend time on this letter because this last church is the one that is most characteristic of churches in the last days before Christ returns. We believe that there will be good churches, that there will be faithful churches during this times. these times. There will be churches like the one at Philadelphia that we studied earlier, churches that will not surrender to the culture, churches that will not deny God's word or Christ's name, but they will stand strongly on the doctrines of Christ and the doctrines of his word. And because Christ promised that he would preserve his church, that must be true. There must be faithful churches until the Lord returns. But we also believe that in the last days that churches will be characterized by the one that we have here in Laodicea, that the church or the world rather will be, will be plagued with a counterfeit church that is much larger, it's much more popular and much more widespread than the true church. And people will mistake this false church for the true church. We only need to read Revelation chapter 17 and 18 to see that there is coming a worldwide church that will be propped up by a secular government, that the Antichrist will promote the false church until he reaches the zenith of his power, and then he won't need that church any longer. So this false church will not arise suddenly. It's in the process. It's working its way up right now. And it will slowly continue to build in the time that we live in. And then when Christ returns, the true church will be taken up to be with him. But then this false church, without skipping a beat, will transition into the tribulation. They never cared for Christ, and so why should they concern themselves with his return? Well, the Lord has always been on the outside of this apostate church. This is what you'll see in verse number 20 of this text. The false church doesn't have Christ, and they won't have him then. They don't have him now. They won't have him then. The false church doesn't work for Christ. It actually works against him and deceiving people into thinking they're safe and secure in their unbelief. And when the Bible speaks of the last days, it means the time between the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1 to the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're living in that period. This period is now 2,000 years old, and that seems like a very, very long time to us, a long time to wait for the Lord to return. But time amounts to nothing to God. 
to him a thousand years are as a day. And so uh, this has not been a long time to him. And we just don't know how long these last days will be. But there is something that we see uh, that we begin to learn from the word of God and, and what we see going on in the world around us. That with all the advancements in technology that we have today, there are some things that are in the Bible that were impossible for people in those first centuries to understand. They didn't see how these things could be possible. An example of that is in Revelation chapter 11, which says that the entire world will see the bodies of two important witnesses for Christ that will lie dead in the streets of Jerusalem. Only in our time can we understand how that could happen because we're able to beam satellite images around the world. And it is that same technology that helps to build the counterfeit church. Because the false gospel is sent around the world through satellite programming. Programming like that of Pat Robertson or of the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Thirty years ago, Tim and, uh, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker spread their horrible prosperity gospel in the PTL club around the world. That died out only to be replaced by more of Satan's troops. And so today we find that there are good missionaries in other parts of the world who say this false prosperity gospel in the counterfeit church is, is the doctrine. The doctrine of that church is the one that they face at the most, that is the most uh, terrible and dangerous doctrine that they face today. And so it's no wonder that the world is drowning in a false gospel. America is drowning in this false gospel. And folks, we are guilty of exporting that false gospel around the world. So now the true church barely holds its head above the floods of the counterfeits. That's what we face. And I believe that if it was possible for us to distinguish the very last days in which we live, we could very well be living in that time. Recently I listened to a sermon from a local church, uh, a church in Petaluma actually, and, and as you know I often complain that I'm plagued with requests to join the North Bay Area Pastors Association. And I refuse to do it because it appears to be nothing more to me than a collection of apostate churches. So I received an invitation from a pastor in Petaluma I decided to go on his church website to listen to one of his sermons. And he admitted in his sermon that many or most of the people in his congregation did not know the Bible. And he admitted that many and most or most of his people in his congregation did not believe the Bible. And so I, I think that we could fairly conclude by those statements that many or most in his congregation were lost and without Jesus Christ. But then this pastor began to preach to the people, if you want to call it that, and he never referred to the gospel of Christ. He preached, and he never said one word about repentance from sin. He never talked about the reality of hell for those who don't trust Christ and believe His word. He never said what it means to be saved, that we are saved from the wrath of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. But he did proceed to encourage the people that they could have a relationship with God. And he said, and he encouraged, he said, you need to try out God. You need to test God for a little while to see what he can do for you. And just see if you test and try God if things won't turn out better. That was nonsense. 
There is nobody who has a relationship with God without knowing Jesus Christ and the full pardon of his sins. There is nobody who goes to heaven without realizing that they're helpless, hopeless sinners who must be saved from God's wrath. This letter to the Laodicean church is about this very issue. In this letter, Christ is standing on the outside of the church, and so we have to ask, how will he come in? Now let's look at the letter again. This time I'm, I'm going to read and just make a few comments as we go, and then we're going to pick up with an important point that we left off in the last message a couple of weeks ago. So if you look at verse number 14 where Jesus begins the letter, he says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, and I remind you that he is speaking to the pastor of the church. He's writing uh, this letter to the pastor who in turn will give it to the people, uh, uh, tell the people what it's about. And he says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the Amen. That is, he is self-affirmed truth. He is the beginning of the creation. That means that he began all things. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And so what we have in the very part, a salutation of the letter, is an affirmation of the deity of Christ and that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In verse number 15, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This is the tepid state of Laodicean Christianity. It's lukewarm, it's distasteful, it's sickening and useless. And so making a play on the disgusting water supply of Laodicea, Jesus used this as a comparison to their spiritual vitality. You are neither cold nor hot, which simply means you are good for Nothing. And then Jesus proceeded to further evaluate their spiritual condition by going into the economic characteristics of the city. Verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The city was economically rich, economically powerful, They stood at the crossroads of two major highways, two great trade routes, and this made them a logical point, a logical place for a banking center. They were also wealthy because of the garment industry, producing fine clothing from the luxurious wool of black sheep that were raised in that area. Their garments were the finest in the empire. Then thirdly, they had a great medical center that was located just a few miles outside of the city. And they produce healing balms for both the eyes and the ears. And people from across the empire sought to their doctors for healing. And so these are their wealth centers, the banking, the the clothing and medicine. And so these are people that are self-sufficient. They are immersed in money. And I would dare say they could put the Bay Area to shame for the cost of goods and housing. And so Jesus took these wealth centers and he made a spiritual application. And his intent was to discipline and to show them that 
True value is not found in worldly wealth. That their souls could not be saved by relying on themselves and gathering for themselves the finest that the world has to offer. And isn't that a good lesson for our materialistic society to learn? But they'll never see it. They won't see it. But we as Christians, we ought to know better what true value is. And so we looked at the way that Jesus masterfully used these wealth centers to teach them. How did he do that? Well, he did it through the discipline they must accept. If Jesus is to come on the inside, then they had better stop talking and start listening. Like that preacher in the local church that I heard, a preacher who thought it's better to sit on a a little stool on the stage and gesture and make jokes. It's time for the apostate church to shut up and stop pretending that they know what they're talking about. Psychology will not save people. Pandering to them and treating them with soft, furry gloves is not going to help them to understand how serious their lost condition is. There's only one thing that's going to save them, and that is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So we look at this and we compare Jesus' method of teaching to the method of the false church. And what does he say to them? Well, in verse 17, again, he says, Because thou sayest, I am rich, I am increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, when you preach like that, you kind of get an understanding why folks want to leave Jesus on the outside. But this is the spiritual condition of the pretend church. They aren't doing as well as they think. Now, sure, they, they rock out to Jesus. And they sway and they clap their hands and, and, they, and they raise them in the air. But they don't know, as Jesus says, that they are poor. They are spiritually bankrupt and they're blind and they're naked. Then he goes on in verse number 18 to discipline them. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And so if he is to come into the church, this is what they must do. First, they must change their values. They must buy of him gold that is tried into the fire. Now that's he's referring to their faith. God operates on faith principles. And faith must be in the right object. Our faith must be in Jesus Christ. And so he speaks, first of all, of their gold. And this is the discipline of values. Faith is the way that we receive heaven's treasures. But we have to ask, faith in what? How how are we going to receive what heaven has to offer? We are to have faith, but what is that faith to be in? Well, we turn back to chapter 1 in verse number 5, and that will help us with the answer. John wrote that he had received this revelation from Jesus Christ. And in verse 5 he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's the value. The value is... The blood of Christ. Now the shedding of his blood stands for the fact that Christ died. And we are washed in his blood because Christ died for our sins. He died to save us from the transgressions that incurred the wrath of God. 
And so Christ took our sins to the cross and He nailed them there. And we have to receive that by faith. That Christ died for us. We receive it by faith and we must believe that to be eternally rich in heaven. Then next, he, he said that they needed white clothing. And this is the discipline of virtue. He's speaking here of a change in the morality. Jesus played off the, the wool of the black sheep. And he said, your clothes need to be white, not black. And of course, he meant that the black stood for their sins. It was their spiritual darkness. And we understand that metaphor even without the Bible because there are times that we say, well, that person's heart is black. Well, Jesus says that that evil person is you. That your heart is black. And you need to be clothed in white. White is emblematic of goodness, of purity, of the righteousness of Christ. And when Christ washes you in his blood, you are clean and white. Well, the sermon that I heard from the false church didn't call sin black. It didn't demand repentance. It didn't say that there's a hell that's waiting for the impenitent. And when you speak to people about Christ, what is the one thing that they are most resistant to believe? They do not believe that God will send anybody to hell, especially them. And so in principle, the false church agrees with this because hell is not an issue to them. They're not going to preach about hell. It's not their issue. And they wouldn't use terms like the impenitent anyway because theological terms are like cyanide to them. That's like pouring salt on a slug. They're grossly uncomfortable with anything that upsets the buzz that they get out of their morning coffee. And this preacher in Petaluma said this as he sipped his coffee on his stool. He said, the Holy Spirit is like caffeine. A change in clothing is an indication of change in morality. You can't come to Christ as you are and leave as you are. Christ kills sin. Christ kills your desire to be immoral. In fact, the Bible says this in Romans 8.13... For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. In Colossians 3, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, that means evil desires, and covetousness which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Now, the shame of nakedness is the shame of being unclothed. That is, to be without righteousness, to be without holiness. And this Laodicean church is one that would tolerate sin. They didn't demand the same changes that Christ demands. And so they must be disciplined with the proper virtue. And then thirdly, Christ spoke of the wealth center of their health. That they needed anointed eyes. And that's the discipline of vision. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Now, the reference is to a healing balm they made for the eyes. And the eyes are a continual spiritual reference in Scripture. The eyes stand for understanding. That our eyes must be open to understand who God is. Spiritual blindness is to have a mind that's closed to the understanding of truth. 1 Corinthians says that the natural man doesn't understand. 2 Corinthians says 
Satan works to keep our minds blinded to the truth. That he covers up truth. He confuses truth. He mixes up truth. He obfuscates truth. He dilutes truth. And this is the reason that Satan promotes the false church. He's busy churning out these Laodicean churches that distort the gospel. His gospel says that you can have it your way, that you can have things the way that you want them. You can feel good about yourself because you're the most important. You're all that matters. And you are a little God and Christ is your genie. God is only happy if you're happy. That's where we left off the last time. It's been a long review, but I think an important one. We need to go over this because of the danger of Laodicean Christianity. We can't warn enough because we believe that this is the church in the last days. But now as we move on, we were talking about spiritual blindness. And these are biblical terms. Darkness and Light are contrasted in the scripture as the two spiritual conditions of people that either you are in the darkness or you are in the light. So let's talk about light and darkness for just a few minutes. Light has, uh, it's been an important subject for us lately. I mean light physically. We've changed the intensity of the lighting in this building. Uh, Our building was set up for a gym atmosphere, and you already know what I feel about that, so I won't go into that again. But there's only one time in, in church when more light might not be as good, and that's with physical light. I, I don't think we want to make it necessary to wear sunglasses in church so that you look up and you're, you're blinded, or you have to shade your eyes when you look up. So we took out the 400-watt incandescent lights, the daylight bulbs that were in the building. We replaced those with 60-watt LED bulbs. And for those that are counting, we have increased our green footprint. Now, if liberals are unhappy because we're going to cut down all the dead trees that are outside, they can be happy that we've compensated for it on the inside. And so we invite them to come in and check it all out and maybe when they get in the inside their hearts will become more concerned about heaven than they are about the earth. And I might add this as well folks, we are not going to destroy the earth. You don't need to worry about that because for all the work that we put into saving this earth, God is going to destroy it. So you you can save it for as long as you want, that's okay, just know that all the efforts are futile This world is not going to last, and what you need to learn is that your soul is far more important than the soil. So physically, we may change lighting in our church. We want to tone things down a little bit, uh, lower the brightness, you might say. But spiritually speaking, darkness is never better. Less light is never good. No light is devastating. And this Laodicean church was dark. It's a church with a lost membership and. There was no one who cared to turn on the light. Now we look and we see how Jesus described them. They didn't have precious faith. That means that their value system is off. He counseled them to be clothed in righteousness, which means they must have been unrighteous. And to be unrighteous is to be cast out into perpetual darkness. That means hell. So the Laodicean church is apostate. This is a lost church. On top of that, he says they're blind. And if the light was to shine, they couldn't see it. If they're without faith, without spiritual clothes, and without sight, then what do you say about this church? They must be lost. Blindness in Scripture is the equivalent of being lost without Christ. 
This is the way that Paul described Israel. In Romans 11.25, he said, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, he said, But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Oh, but don't sit there and think, well, it's just Israel. No, we as Gentiles were also blind. Ephesians 4 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So the whole world lies in darkness and the gospel is hidden because Satan blinds people's eyes to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the eyes of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And that is the exceeding serious condition of all those that are lost without Christ. So we must be careful of the funny, relevant, hipster preacher in tight jeans whose greatest spiritual platitude is that the Holy Spirit is like caffeine. See, the blind... The blind can never will themselves to see. No, there has to be a supernatural opening of the eyes, and that's done by the Holy Spirit of God, and only God can do it. Jesus came into the world in darkness to give the light of understanding through the work of the Holy Spirit. In John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 12, 46, he said, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. So the church, uh, the Lord counseled the Laodicean church to see something, the only thing that they could see, and that is their true spiritual condition. So you throw out this mishmash mess of the false church, they can only see the light through the eyes of faith. Faith is the thing that turns on that light that shines in the darkness of spiritual poverty and again what does Jesus say in John 12 46 whoever believes in me will not abide in darkness so there is a Christ who saves he enriches and empowers through faith alone faith lights up a church with thousands of lumens of light the gospel of self-will can never turn on that light darkness rules in the church but when that light comes on, it changes the view. Have you noticed that in the, in the shadows that things look different? You ever been in bed at night and in the darkness you see a shadow that you think could be a person that's standing in your bedroom? Then you turn on the light and you discover, oh, that's just a, a coat that's been thrown over the chair. There's nothing to be afraid of. In our bedroom at home, there's a hook on the back of our bedroom door and I never use the hook because I prefer to throw my clothes on the chair in the bedroom. My wife doesn't like me to do that, and she would rather that I would put my clothes on the hook. 
So a few nights ago, she decided without me knowing that she would just pick my clothes up and put them on the hook. And I went to bed. I didn't think about it. About 3 a.m., I heard a noise. And I woke up to see clothes on the hook where no clothes usually are. And I had a heart attack. And after the paramedics came and revived me and turned on the light, I saw things are different. There's really not any need to be afraid. And do you know that this is what the gospel does? You turn on the light and it takes away all the fear. It takes all the shadows away. It takes away the fear of the darkness away. And that light shines on Jesus Christ and shows that He is in full control of everything that goes on in your life. There's no need to fear anything that comes in this life. Jesus protects us from the darkness of our spiritual night. William Ernest Henley in his famous poem Invictus said in the closing line of many blasphemous statements, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He wrote in that poem that he was unafraid of the horrors of the shade. He said he was unfazed by the straight gate and the punishment of it. But he was a man who couldn't see because he had spiritually blinded eyes. And when that light shines in, there is a new view of sin, There is a new view of self and of God. And in Laodicea, there was no light. Christ's descriptions of them make this apparent. I doubt they were concerned about lifestyles. Like in the modern church that we have today, nobody ever says anything about the way that people live. And so this is the church down at the bottom, down in the dregs, where the dregs have settled. And they may not look like that by their own evaluation, but when you take that church and you compare it to the light of God's Word, you find out that's where they are. That they aren't the true church of Christ because His church is is changed. His people have changed hearts. And changed hearts will always lead to changed actions. you ever spoken the gospel to someone and they ask you, Well, if I get saved, do I have to give up drinking? Do I have to give up going to the nightclubs to be saved? The Bible's answer is yes. But you say, oh, I thought that we were saved by faith alone. I thought that we were saved. We don't have to do anything to be saved, do we? We're not saved by what we do. That is absolutely true. We are not saved by what we do. But saving faith, a saving faith, always leads to a change of actions. That God convicts the heart. That God convicts that the sins of alcohol and drugs and sexual perversions and marital infidelity, it convicts you of all sin. And if you're not convinced of sin and you have no desire to change from it, then you don't have the faith that Christ gives. Oh, there's a change of vision with saving faith. Sin appears as sin. The light shines on it and the nastiness of that sin appears. You begin to see what sin did to Christ. That you see that sin pushed Christ on the outside, like you see Him in verse number 20. That sin drove Jesus to the cross. And in a Bible metaphor, sin drove Him outside the gate where He shamefully abused and nailed to the cross. Sin caused Him to die in agony and in shame. He suffered the rejection of the Father. And so do you dare ask when you come to Christ... Will Christ save me if I don't repent of my sins? Would you dare ask that question? And yet there are many soul winners who say nothing at all about repentance. They say, don't tell people they have to give up anything. Don't tell people they have to do anything. Tell them it's okay if they continue to drive nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. And in effect, that is a deficient gospel. 
Can I keep doing it and be saved? Can I receive Christ and His salvation and not agree that I must stop crucifying Him? The Bible says, no. You don't have God-given faith if it doesn't open your eyes to sin and change you. Now, do you understand? Do you see? What is salvation? Anybody know what salvation is? What is salvation if it's not deliverance from the sins that condemn us? But most people are taught that salvation is about them. Just give me a little bit of it. Give me enough of it that will keep me out of hell. But salvation is not primarily about us, and it never was. Salvation is about God. And so you ask, then, how can God be glorified in the salvation of sinners only in this way? By sanctifying and stopping sin. That's how God is glorified. He stops sin. Well, I need to finish. So let me illustrate this principle through my experience with two couples who wanted to join our church. There was one couple who didn't want to give up sin and the other who were convinced that they should. Now, the first couple came to our church for a visit and they said, we're Christians. And they said, we were raised in a Christian home. Our parents are Christians and we are Christians. So they came to church. They weren't looking for salvation. They believed they were saved and so they're just looking for membership in the church. Well, I've learned that one of the first questions that I need to ask young couples today is that, are you living together or are you married? Well, this couple was living together, not married. And I told them, the Bible stands against that. And I told them that our church believes the Bible, and we stand against it. And I told them that the faith of Christ is against it. And I said, we must preach against it. And they said, but we want to be members. And I said, no. Not unless you understand your sin and you sincerely repent of your sin can you be members of this church. And so you must either get married, or you must agree to live apart. And they chose neither. They chose to continue to live in their sin. But then there was another couple. This couple was lost. They were living together. They came here for a few weeks, and then after hearing the messages, both of them were saved. And they wanted to be baptized, but like many young couples today, they didn't know anything about Christian stuff and the way that they should live. And so I told them, no, you can't be baptized because of your living situation. When they heard that, they immediately seized on that news and they said, then, we know what we need to do. Now, the interesting thing is they planned to be married, but their wedding day was several months off. They'd already planned. They'd already paid their wedding planner. They'd already contributed money towards this wedding that was several months away. And uh, I said, well, you've got to get married or you've got to live apart until you are married or I'm not going to baptize you. Now, the thing is that their finances were intertwined. They owned a house together. And in this area, you know how expensive that it is in affording to, affording to keep their house and, and then to have another place to pay, pay for so they could live apart. That was just impossible for them to do. So they said, well, we know what we need to do. We're saved and we want to please the Lord. So let's get married now. And then in a few months, we'll go through this again in another ceremony. We'll have a ceremony in the church with all of our friends and our family. So they came into my office, and with a witness, I married them. And then 
they were baptized. Which of those two couples do you think was saved? I highly doubt the first one, but I'm thoroughly convinced of the second. True faith does not ask, can I slide by with sin? No, it asks, what must I do to be fully obedient to Christ? And then it acts. I said a few weeks ago that there are too many Christians that like to use the word backslide. I'm just a backslidden Christian, and I'm going to tell you that most of them who say they are backslidden Christians are not saved. God does not let His people live in sin. You recognize sin, and you will turn from sin if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I said I'd give you two examples, but I'm going to add a third. There was another couple that came to our church. This couple was married, but they were members of a Laodicean church. And they said, we realize that we're not getting any depth of doctrine in the church that we attend. And we realize after coming to your church and listening to the sermons that we can learn more if we became members of this church and we can grow in our faith. And so we want to become members of this church. And so I talked with them, and for sure, they had no depth of doctrine. So I examined them about their baptism. And I learned that they were baptized by YWAM, Youth with a Mission. They were baptized in the ocean at a youth rally. So I told them, YWAM is not a church. That YWAM has no authority to baptize anybody. And so if you want to be members here, then you must submit to scriptural baptism, the kind that is authorized by a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the weakness of the Laodicean church showed up. They stumbled at that rock of offense. And thus is the danger. We find the danger of Laodicea. People think, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. They're turned off by things that don't please them. They're turned off by things that don't please them. And so they go away with their weak faith and they never come to maturity of the faith. The guy with the skinny jeans and the story stifles their sanctification. And so if by God's grace there is anybody in a congregation like that who is saved, they have nothing to grow with. And so even the saved person can become an unwitting tool of Satan who is the master deceiver. A Berean Baptist church wants to be very clear about sin. We want to be very clear about the human condition. We will not substitute a gospel that meets your felt needs and ensures that you're happy with yourself. The gospel will never, a false gospel will never satisfy. There's nothing in it that will help you. And so if you can't find your contentment in Christ and in obedience to Christ, and if you can't find your contentment in that which washes away your sin, you're not ready for heaven. Oh, you might be ready for a rocking good time at the feel-good church, but you're not ready for heaven. And why are we so insistent about this? Why do we keep preaching this? Because we believe that Christ is coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to take those who believe. He's going to take those whose eyes have been opened to the truth. And those whose eyes have not been opened to the truth will not see Him. They're spiritually blind. They don't know. And so the false church is not taken up. They just transfer their Christless Christianity into the burgeoning church of the Antichrist. And they go on just as they were. One week after the rapture, they still have church. 
The preacher will sit on his stool and he'll drink his caffeine and he'll tell people, you can have a relationship with God. Do you see the danger in it? It's not just the preacher who doesn't go up. It's entire congregations who won't go up. Because they haven't believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they continue just as they are until they meet the day of wrath. So the Laodicean church needed discipline in these three areas. Their values, their virtue, and their vision. And can I play into that just briefly? That value is faith. That virtue is sanctification. And vision is glorification. Only eyes that are open to Christ will see the glory of God in heaven. And so we must ask this question. Do you have faith? Have you believed? Are you virtuous? Is there any evidence of saving faith in your life? Do you have a different vision? Can you see Christ as the only hope that you have for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you see God in heaven because you have been accepted in Christ? We must listen to the wise counsel of Jesus. We must be disciplined by Him. He said, I counsel thee. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you understanding, Lord, that we have no covering for sin but the blood of Jesus Christ. And we come to you, Lord, looking at the scriptures that we've just examined and see that a person who has true faith in Jesus Christ will be an obedient person, will look at the commandments of Scripture and will obey them not to be saved, but because that faith that they say that they have placed in you is a real faith that saves from sin and cures the lost condition that washes us white as snow in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of some lost sinner today that the spiritually blind would be able to see because only you can do it. So Lord, we ask for that today and then for our people who may be complacent at times and may not be concerned about their life of service to you, that they have nothing to rely on, that faith is real unless there is evidence of that faith that they can point to and say, because I love Christ, because I obey Christ, I know that I'm one of his children. Well, we need that assurance in our hearts today. Speak to our people, Lord. Draw us close to you. Save the lost. Sanctify the saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.